0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bizarre Archives, the podcast dedicated to the bizarre, weird, and mysterious events throughout history. I'm sorry it took me so long to get this next episode out, but I drastically underestimated the amount of information I would have to sort through for this topic. So today, we are going to talk about D.B. Cooper, one of the most infamous plane hijackers in history. He has never been caught as far as we are aware and there's plenty of odd events that lead up to all of this that's going to be very interesting to sort through so thanks so much for joining me today Alrighty, the story starts for us on november 24th 1971 at the northwest orient airlines in portland oregon a man identifying himself as dan cooper bought a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington on flight number 305 with cash. The plane was a Boeing 727. He was white, male, between 5'9 and 6'1, weighing maybe between 170 and 180 pounds in his mid-40s, with an olive complexion, brown eyes, black hair, a conventional haircut parted on the left and sideburns. He was wearing a suit, loafers and trench coat. And as far as we are well are aware, are aware, he had at least one suitcase with him. The flight was scheduled to take off at around 2:50 p.m. and according to different sources, it took off between then and 3:30 p.m., but you can never be too sure with flight delays. It carried 36 passengers, not including the crew. Of the crew, you had the pilot, Captain William Scott, First Officer Bob, and I will probably butcher this last name, but I try, Ratazak, Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson, Flight Attendants Tina Mucklow, and Florence Schaffner. Cooper sat calmly through takeoff, ordered a bourbon and soda, and seemed like any other ordinary passenger. But after takeoff, at some point in time between 3 and 5, he slipped the flight attendant, Florence Schaffner, a note warning that he had a bomb. He had her sit next to him, either after she showed this note to to the pilot or beforehand, I'm not sure. It honestly depends on the account you read, but we'll continue on and say it was probably before. I don't know. But he had her sit next to him and briefly opened his very cheap suitcase showing a mass of wires and red sticks that were most likely dynamite. He then sent her with a different note to the pilot demanding $200,000 in $20 bills very specifically. And also one he wanted them to make sure that the bill's serial numbers were not sequential so they would be harder to track. He also wanted four parachutes or... If they didn't give him all of this, he would blow up the plane. He did, in fact, take both of these notes back after they had been delivered and read so that there wouldn't be as much evidence left behind to track him. The pilot contacted Air Traffic Control, who contacted FBI, who called Donald Nipro Nirolp. I'm not sure how to pronounce that last name either. But he was the president of the airline that this flight belonged to. And he agreed to comply to the de- demands, which makes sense. I would be rather concerned as well. They reached their destination, and Cooper instructed the pilot to stay in the air until the demands were ready. When everything was ready, the pilot, co- the pilot was contacted, and he landed in Seattle. The plane was then directed by Cooper to be moved to a remote and well-lit area. There, he either dimmed the lights or pulled down the blinds in the cabin, one of the two, in order to make it harder for people to see inside, most likely so it would be harder for snipers to see inside. So, he had this pretty well planned out in a lot of different areas. The FBI made sure, even though they couldn't get bills that were in sequential order, that at least each serial number began with an L at the, code, at the beginning of each of the codes. And they also put all of these bills on microfilm for later identification. Cooper specified that he wanted parachutes that were civilian and not military. I tried to find the difference between these two, but honestly couldn't find much in my research. So if anybody has a clue, try contacting me later so I can find out. I am honestly very curious. The FBI had to buy these parachutes from a local skydiving school because they couldn't find them anywhere else. The FFA official asked for permission to come on board to warn Cooper about the dangers and the consequences of air piracy, but he was very firmly denied. Cooper then exchanged the 36 passengers along with Florence Schaffner for the money and parachutes. He then instructed the pilot to set a course for New Mexico. And told him to remain at or below an altitude of 10,000 feet and keep an airspeed between 150 and 100 knots. Which, 100 knots, I looked up, and that would be around 115 or a little above miles per hour. But for an airplane, this is pretty low to the ground and low in altitude and pretty slow, honestly. So... It's kind of interesting, but according to other people and other things I've researched, that is a safe speed for someone to parachute out of a plane. So, he knew what he was doing in that case scenario, and he knew that this very specific plane could handle going that low in altitude and that slow where others wouldn't be able to. So... A lot of these things add up and say he was most likely experienced with both planes and skydiving, or at least did his research on planes very extensively. The pilot explained to Cooper that to accommodate with that speed and that altitude, they would need to refuel in Reno, Nevada which Cooper agreed to, and the plane took off at that low-altitude route in a section called Vector 23, which was safely west of a mountain range. They hit a really heavy rainstorm along that route that also had high winds. So, not the best weather for parachuting, but I don't know. I haven't been parachuting before. That's just a guess, and based off of what I've read. From there, he had the flight attendants read instructions for operating something called aft stairs that were at the back of the plane and lowered down. Um, The stewardess thought that these couldn't be lowered while in flight, while Cooper said that they could. He said this very firmly, and like he had the knowledge of this. So, that's what they did. Cooper made all the crew stay in the cockpit with the door shut, and very closed off so nobody could see what he was doing while he remained in the cabin. Either before takeoff or during the flight, he ordered the cabin cabin depressurized, which he also apparently knew that people could in fact breathe at 10,000 feet, so he didn't have to be concerned about that. So, there you go. There was also no violent gust of wind when the stairs were lowered because of the cabin being depressurized. At around 8 p.m., the red light warning went off near the pilot's operating deck, stating that a door on the plane was open, so Cooper had opened the stairs. at this point. He asked Cooper over the intercom if there was anything they could do for him, and he responded, according to some sources, very angrily, "No." and that's the last time that the crew or anyone else, as far as we are aware, heard from D.B. Cooper. Most likely between 8.10 and 8.20, the nose of the plane dipped and the tail lifted up, slightly signaling that they'd lost at least a little bit of weight off the back of the plane. The pilot noted that this was 25 miles north of Portland, near the Lewis River. The crew never left the cockpit or went into the cabin just in case that Cooper was still there. They wanted to still follow the rules because it's still a concerning situation. Um, Some high-speed jets were sent after the plane after it took off from Seattle, but because it was going so slow and so low in altitude, the planes, the jets that went after it had a really hard time following because they just couldn't go that slow of speeds. They had to keep swerving and trying to keep up with the plane while also going faster. So they honestly couldn't pay that much attention to what was happening. And when Cooper jumped out, if he did jump out, they just were too busy keeping themselves in the air in order to before they could even pay attention. So with them distracted and the crew in the cockpit, nobody saw those last couple minutes of Cooper on the plane or when he jumped. But when they landed in Reno around 10 p.m., They got no response from the cabin, and so authorities stormed it and found it empty. Cooper was gone from the authorities and, as far as we are aware, from history. So the only things he left behind were, according to different sources, this list will be different, a few fingerprints, a clip on JCPenney tie, which I honestly thought was kind of funny, um maybe a few cigarettes, and at least one of the parachutes. Some sources say one, some say two. I'm honestly not sure on that one. The FBI calculated where Cooper should have landed and checked the next day after weather had calmed down, which happened to be Thanksgiving. Kind of a bummer for all those people who had to be away from their families, but oh well. And they continued the search for weeks, but didn't find one trace of Cooper anywhere. They had no idea where he went, and the only evidence they ever found in the areas nearby they didn't find until February tenth of nineteen eighty, which was almost nine years later. And that's when an eight-year-old boy found a bundle of twenty, a couple bundles actually, of twenty-dollar bills on a sandbank or in a sandbank of the Columbia River, and this all added up to be about $5,800, which did match up to the serial numbers from the money of the Cooper case. This all happened around one mile from the official search site. That is the only thing they ever found in that area, as far as I can tell. The FBI though, did receive letters allegedly sent by Cooper, though this was never confirmed, about, I don't know, like a couple days after the hijacking. It started up pretty quick. The first was received on November 29th, 1971. So, yeah, a couple days later, a couple weeks later, it was from Oakdale, California California, to the Reno Evening Gazette. Um, and they, the way this letter was set up was letters cut out from a Sacramento Bee newspaper. Funnily enough, what the letter said was, Attention, thanks for the hospitality, was in a rut. Signed, D.B. Cooper. This At this point, a newspaper had taken the account of the hijacking and accidentally switched out Dan Cooper for D.B. Cooper, and it just snowballed from there and has since been known as BB Cooper, which I find hilarious. This is just what happens when newspapers get things wrong. They just kind of go out of hand. This is why you have to double-check everything, but not the point. The second letter was postmarked November 30th, 1971, and it was sent to the Vancouver Province Newspaper in British Columbia. This one, however, was handwritten. And this one was, quote, the, com- the composite drawing on page three, as suspected by the FBI, does not represent the truth. I enjoyed the Grey Cup game and leaving Vancouver. Thanks for the hospitality. Signed, D.B. Cooper. End quote. Yeah, this guy just sounds real proud of himself. If this is in fact sent by D.B. Cooper. Again, this has never been confirmed. The third was mailed in um, Northern Oregon on December 1st, 1971, and it was received by the newspaper the Portland Oregonian. I think I said that correctly. Moving on. This one used letters cut from a Playboy magazine, of all things, and this one goes, quote, I'm alive and doing well in hometown, P.O. the system that beats the system, end quote. Admittedly, I don't understand that one quite as much, I'll try to look into it more later, but um, that one kind of confuses me. The fourth was also mailed on December 1st from Sacramento, California area. This one was received by the Reno Evening Gazette and was also made with pasted letters, although I'm not quite sure from what magazine or newspaper the letters came from. This one was a bit shorter. It simply says, quote, plan ahead for retirement income, signed D.B. Cooper, end quote. The fifth was so much longer. Oh, my. It was postmarked on December 11th, 1971, sent to the New York Times, Seattle Times, Los Angeles Times, and Washington Post. So he's reaching out to a lot more newspapers and magazines at this point. Um, this one was also only released to the public from the FBI after a private investigation, investigative team led by a documentary filmmaker, Thomas Colbert, filed a Freedom of Information Act request, which I'm learning more and more as I do research that that happens a lot just to get this information to the public. Anyways, whew, take a deep breath for this one because it is long. Quote, Sirs, I knew from the start I wouldn't be caught. I didn't rob Northwest Orient because I thought it would be romantic, heroic, or any of the other euphemisms that seem to attach to situations of high risks. I'm no modern-day Robin Hood. Unfortunately, I do only have 14 months to live. My life has been one of hate, turmoil, hunger, and more hate. This seemed to be the fastest and most profitable way to gain a few fast grains of peace of mind. I don't blame people for hating me for what I've done, nor do I blame anybody for wanting me to be caught and punished, though this can never happen. Here are some, not all, of the things working against the authorities. I'm not a boasting man. I left no fingerprints. I wore a toupee. I wore putty makeup. They could add or subtract from the composite a hundred times and not come up with an accurate description, and we both know it. I've come and gone on several airline flights already and am not holed up in some obscure backwoods town. Neither am I a psychopathic, psychotic, whatever, killer. As a matter of fact, I've never even received a speeding ticket. Thank you for your attention, signed D.B. Cooper, end quote. May I just throw in my two cents here of he claims not to be a boasting man, but these letters and their existence kind of say otherwise? But, you know, I'm not going to argue with him. I can't. I don't even know where he is. If he's listening, which I kind of doubt, you are a very boastful man. I'm just saying. Okay, anyways. Number six was mailed on March 28, 1972 from Jacksonville, Florida, to the Portland Oregonian. Again, signed... Okay, so this one actually was signed a rich man, not D.B. Cooper. Just to clarify, that again sounds extremely boastful, but we move on. Quote... This letter is to let you know I am not dead, but really alive and just back from the Bahamas. So your silly troopers up there can stop looking for me. That is just how dumb this government is. I like your articles about me, but you can stop them now. D.B. Cooper is not real. I had to do something with the experience Uncle taught me. So here I am, a very rich man. Uncle gave too much of it to the world's idiots and no work for me. I had to do it to relieve myself of frustration. I want out of the system and saw a way through good ol' uncle. Pause quote for a minute here. Unk is more accurate. Ol' Unk is O-L-E-U-N-K. Kind of weirded out by the spelling, but not the point. Continuing quote, Now you know, I am going around the world and they will never find me because I am smarter than the system's lackey cops and lame-duck leaders. Now it is Uncle's turn to weep and pay one of its own some cash for a change. And please tell the lackey cops, D.B. Cooper is not my real name. End quote. Yeah, that one had a little bit weirder spelling. And as far as I can tell, Uncle is Uncle Sam or the government, which has led many, many people to believe that D.B. Cooper served in the military in some form or another. And with the experience it would take to do a lot of these things, I'm very inclined to believe them. But before we go too crazy, we again have to take into account these letters have never been confirmed whether or not they are from Cooper. And I will continue to state that. Um, But the letters did get sent to an FBI laboratory in Washington for analysis. They didn't find anything as far as I can tell or anybody can tell. And the FBI did, in fact, claim that the letters were a hoax at one point, though most people can decide for themselves whether that's true. But that is, as f- up until this point, all the evidence that they had. We will get into, later in the episode, more evidence that they found in the last couple of years, but... For most of the years that this case has been open and considered, this is as much information as they had, as anybody had. So this is what they had to work with. Now that we've gone through the different pieces of the case and the story behind it, we can get into the suspects and the theories and a few other things. First, we're going to list off the suspects and take into account these are not all suspects. There are a lot of people that I've missed. I can't cover everybody because it seems to be a thing that people on their deathbed or to their relatives claim to be D.B. Cooper. Everybody wants to take a piece of this name and claim it for themselves because you get instant fame along with it. However, I don't know if the real D.B. Cooper would claim that. I don't know. Nobody honestly knows, but the point of this is there are more people out there claiming to be D.B. Cooper than should ever be possible, and I think it's kind of weird that people want to be this crazy thief. Personal thoughts, not the point. Okay, so the first suspect is Robert Rackstraw. He as far as I can tell, is one of the most famous suspects and one of the most widely considered options to actually be DB Cooper, which is fair. A lot of people have delved into his life and the evidence of all of it. I can tell you here now, if you go Google it, you will get so many articles and so much information that you have to s- swim your way through and wade your way through. But I could see why people would think this was him, He's an ex-military, He's pi- was a pilot, he was trained in explosives, parachute, um, and skydiving, survival, and flight training, and all of these different things. In June of 1971, he was accused of falsifying college records, and lying about rank, and medals, and other things in the military, and he was forced to resign from the U.S. Army. Um... From there, it's kind of hard to follow depending on what sources you're going through. But he was a man who lied a lot based off of all the different things that I've read. Like everything that you read about. This guy talks about how much he lied just all the time about everything. Whether it was a speeding ticket or his education, where he was going, what he was up to, his jobs, his experience. He lied about so much. And in a lot of cases, I found he had a lot of jobs to do with flying planes, or at least he claimed to. His family, in fact, saw him off and on in the months leading up to the hijacking, but not all that much. And according to some reports, some family members claimed he was in trouble and to not tell authorities anything about what he was up to. Also, he was a suspect for a robbery of military weaponry um, just a little bit before all of this happened. You also have a couple different sources that claim that there's a code in the 5th and 6th letters supposedly sent by Cooper that include the numbers 717171684, which is supposedly deciphered to I'm Lieutenant Robert W. Rackstraw. The the six-letter code would translate to I'm Lieutenant Robert W. Rackstraw, D.B. Cooper is not my real name, I want out of the system, and saw a way by hijacking one jet plane. This was supposedly discovered by a private investigative team led by Tom Colbert, there's also a person who came forward who served in the military, supposedly with Raxdaw, who cra- claimed to have seen these codes. I don't know. I know nothing about codes. There's a possibility that these were in the letters, but we haven't clarified the letters are from him either. So this could or could not be evidence in the fact that he is Cooper. Honestly, there's just not enough information To say if he is or not. The FBI did take him off the suspect list at one point. um, But a lot of the investigators on the team and other investigators disagreed with this particular move by the FBI. Um, A lot of people still believe it was him. Quite a few people. There's a lot of followings just dedicated to figuring out if he was D.B. Cooper. And I would believe it, that he is a very firm and solid suspect. I would like to see more firm information with the background on how they got that information explained, but, you know, you get what you get. The next main subject is a man named Richard Floyd McCoy Jr., as is a mouthful. Um... So he hijacked a plane in 1972, just a year after the Cooper case, and this was also a Boeing 727, same as Cooper. Um, this time, though, this man used a hand grenade and a pistol in order to hijack the plane. He wanted a half a million dollars and four parachutes. He jumped out over Utah, Um He was a Vietnam veteran. He was a helicopter pilot at one point and a capable skydiver. But his hijacking was a lot sloppier in a lot of different ways. And he was caught just three days after he hijacked the plane. He was then tried and sentenced to 45 years in prison. The issue with his hijacking and with how sloppy it was you have a lot of different things like he didn't wear a disguise when he got on the plane he went into the bathroom before the plane went off took off and then put on a disguise and came back out which seems counterintuitive in a lot of ways not the point he left a lot of fingerprints and he left one of his notes behind so they could correlate that with his handwriting Um, He also had a friend that remembered discussing a plane hijacking who told the police about this. Witnesses saw him near the place where he bailed and could identify him. And also, he bailed out over Utah, and this flight that he hijacked was from Salt Lake City to somewhere in California. But he got on the plane in Salt Lake City, he jumped out when it was flying back, and it was in Utah, and he lived in Provo. It's really easy to kind of figure out where he's going and where he lives. That that one kind of stuck out because, as far as I can tell by everything I've read, D.B. Cooper planned out everything meticulously so he would not get caught. Richard McCoy, however, basically led them directly to his front door. So, it's a lot sloppier, it's a lot harder for me to believe, personally, that this guy would be Cooper, the resounding, crazy person who got away from the FBI. I just, I don't see it, personally. Maybe others do. I don't know. I leave that up to you. Not the point. So, he, after he was put in jail, two years later, broke out of prison with some other inmates was tracked down three months later by the FBI, because apparently this guy's very easy to track, and was killed in a shootout between the police officers after firing a shot at them. Um, It was, however, proven later on that he was with his family for Thanksgiving during the D.B. Cooper hijacking, which solidifies the fact that he probably wasn't D.B. Cooper because he had a very solid alibi. I don't know. I don't think it was him personally, but there are others who do. And if you do, that's your choice. So the next guy. Lynn Doyle Cooper. Um, honestly, he's not very easily connected to the Cooper case other than his last name. Though I have a very hard time believing that someone would use their actual last name while hijacking a plane. Do not believe that would be a thing, especially where Cooper had planned everything out so well and was so well prepared to get away from the authorities. I don't think this is as likely. But the reason his name was brought forward is his niece, Maria Cooper, reported in 2011 that she supposedly heard her uncle talk about money problems being over and hijacking a plane. She claimed that this was done by Lynn and his brother Dewey, and that Dewey was the getaway man on the ground ready to drive off, but she had no evidence other than her word, And she used this quite often to be noticed by the media and to gain fame. So a lot of people question if she just made it up in order to get attention. Which I think is a very likely scenario. Because she brings it up, she gets all this attention, it dies down, and she just kind of backs away from the from the spotlight and doesn't talk about it ever again. I don't think it's as likely that he was, in fact, D.B. Cooper between the lack of evidence and why would he use his actual last name. He's pretty low on my suspect list. In fact, I wouldn't even put him on my suspect list. I'm There may be other people who disagree, who have looked more into this. This is just based off the information I can find. The next one is Kenneth Christensen. He is ex-military. He was a paratrooper and worked for the Northwest Orient Airlines as a flight attendant. So he knows some inside information about the planes, about how these things work. He was put forth as a suspect by his brother and supposedly like a year or more after the hijacking bought a house with cash, but I have found different sources that say this is either true or not true, that it's hearsay. I found no evidence firmly backing it up, however. So that that's an iffy part of his case. But everything else stands up pretty well. He worked for this airline. He knew how their security worked. He had the correct experience that would be needed to plan and execute said plan. Nah, he's a likely suspect. I give that fully. I haven't been able to find much other information that would connect him to the case. He just doesn't seem like as big of a name. Don't know if people just kind of forget about him and so haven't done as much research on it, but... He just isn't as big of a name, but I think it's very likely that he could be. So, next one is William J. Smith. He served in the military in the Navy in World War II, where he learned about parachuting and he had skydiving training. He had recently, before the hijacking, had his employer one of the railway systems, apparently, go broke, go bankrupt. So this put his pension in jeopardy, which, if you're having extreme money problems out of the blue, that's a very stressful situation, it could push you to do something slightly desperate like this. He fits the description, the sketch given by the FBI, Of what D.B. Cooper supposedly looked like. And he did, in fact, according to one source, have an acquaintance that he went to, like, high school and middle school with who went by Dan Cooper and who died in the war. That's a little bit more hearsay, but if it's true, pretty good evidence. William J. Smith, however, died in 2018, so... We cannot ask him personally about this information. Kind of limits, honestly, how much information we can get on him. The next suspect is Robert Richard Lepsey. I'm pretty sure I said that last name correctly. This one is a little bit different and actually really intrigued me. I thought this was a really interesting idea. He disappeared before the hijacking ever happened. He disappeared back in 1969 on October 29th, and as far as the authorities can tell, and with how much they've looked into this case, it seems that he disappeared voluntarily. He left his work at a grocery store for lunch and just never came back. Later on, his car was found at an airport. It was unlocked and the keys were in the ignition. And the airport said it's possible that he had gotten on a flight to Mexico. He also had a very striking resemblance to D.B. Cooper. So the maybe the reason why he was never found is because people had stopped looking for him already. He had already disappeared off the face of the earth. He knew how to do it. He could do it again. And he wouldn't be a name put forward more often. Because he had already disappeared. I have not found much information on his training about parachuting and planes. Maybe he could have looked that information up in the time he had disappeared. Maybe he had it beforehand. That is not information I was able to find. So that that missing evidence does make me question a little bit. It's a very interesting theory, though, and I fully give it that. The last suspect we're going to go over is William Gossett. He was a veteran of the Korean and the Vietnam War. He was a survivalist and a parachuter. He told his sons and a judge that he was friends with that he was D.B. Cooper Before his death in 2003, he held up a key and showed it to him and claimed it was to a box in Vancouver that contained the lost money, the lost ransom money from the hijacking. I have found absolutely no evidence that they ever took this key, that they ever found a box, or that they ever found the money. So without that evidence, I'm less likely to agree with this particular suspect because there's been so many people already who have claimed to be db cooper but just did it for the fame and even these people who are claiming it get some pretty pretty crazy and kooky stories that they say this is how i did it or this is how i did it It's, it's not something that's new he did resemble the sketch given by the FBI, but there is no other evidence other than hearsay. So uh I don't know. I'd probably put him lower at the like near the bottom of my list of people I would claim would be DB Cooper. Overall, this is just a handful, just a drop in the bucket of all all of the different suspects that are out there. The FBI, when they really got searching and started with this case, had probably over a thousand suspects, and they knocked nearly all of them off the list, but some people disagree with people they took off the list. So it will continue to be debated for years to come. I have very little doubts about that. Now that we've gone through the suspects, though, I did, in fact, find a very interesting theory on a very random website, but they had a lot of good information. Um, This journalist had gone through and researched what he called the 813 problem, where authorities and news articles are very focused in on the time they believe that D.B. Cooper jumped out of the plane, around 8.13. You know, between like 8.10, 8.20, that range of time when he supposedly jumped out of the plane. But mm, he claims that this isn't something that is concrete, The pilot said that this is when Cooper jumped out because he felt the tail go up and the stairs, like, supposedly rebound a little bit. Like something had moved off of it. Something very heavy. But nobody in the crew that was left behind ever left to go check if he was actually gone. So we have no clue if that is Sincerely, the time that he jumped out. Cooper was Mm -hmm. very, very careful with his planning, with his execution, with what he did, and when he did it, and how he did it. He understood enough to be able to get the bomb on the plane, although That admittedly wasn't very hard because they had almost no security back then. Just adding that on. But he understood how the plane worked, how to get the money, that the money needed to be in non-sequential order, that he wanted very specific parachutes, he knew enough to tell them to fly to New Mexico, Even if he was never going to get there, he just had it so meticulously planned out that this article questions if he didn't, in fact, have a plan to make sure that the authorities couldn't tell when he jumped out of the plane. Because if they didn't know when he jumped out of the plane, their search radius Expands exponentially. It's huge if you don't have a basic idea of an area he would have been in. They obviously used mathematics and other things to determine that particular section of the woods that they had searched before, but that would all depend on if he did jump out of the plane at that time. And so the question here is, if he could have faked it, why he would have faked it, and what problems are there with assuming that he jumped out at 8.13. So there's two problems with specifically the idea that the stairs that he used, these aft stairs, rebounded. You have the fact that Cooper, who knew what he was doing up until this point and seemed to be smart enough to know all of the necessities for parachuting, would have understood that it would have been better to sit on the stairs and slowly eased himself off in order to assume the freefall position quicker and more easily rather than just going to the edge of the stairs and jumping this is something that he would have understand and understood how to do. and so he would make sure that you know he wasn't just tumbling through air. You need to be in a specific position to do this and if you're lower to the ground you want to be able to reach that position quicker. The other problem is that if they're going through these high winds in a rainstorm with all of these things going on, would his weight have been able to make the stairs um, move if the winds weren't doing that themselves, especially these high gusts of wind in this, in the middle of this storm? At this point, the stairway would have been caught in the stream of airflow, which would have probably held it in place... Because if it didn't, then these stairs would be going all over the place in this wind. So would they have been able to tell the difference between a wind gust or him jumping off? Or if the wind was keeping it in place, would it have moved when he jumped off? This leads us to the before mentioned question. Could he have faked this? So this author... Puts forth the idea that Cooper asked for four parachutes, and one once left behind in the cockpit. What if he had taken the cords from this parachute, tied them to the stairs, lifted it up, and made it fall back down? If these stairs, which would have been big enough, did that, then that probably would have shifted the plane enough to at least make it feel like they had lost some weight in the back. It would have been a very smart move and it would have made it so he had more time to get away from the authorities than he would have otherwise if they knew the basic area that they should be searching. The FBI claimed that at one point that Cooper was a fool, that he didn't know what he was doing simply because he jumped into these high winds and high rains which would have been a very dangerous situation to parachute in between the storm possibly wrecking the parachute and not being able to see but this author and myself and many other people questioned that if cooper seemed to be this intelligent up to this point why would he make a very very stupid mistake like jumping out into these high winds unless he either had the experience necessary to parachute in these conditions, or he never jumped in the middle of the storm anyways. He could have faked it. He could have moved the stairs, done something, maybe thrown something off the back of the plane, and just waited. And then when the storm was clear, he was a little bit farther away, there wasn't as much foliage and trees, jumped out without anybody noticing nobody could def- confirm or deny this because nobody was back there with him in those last however long this last half hour or more if i personally think it is a very sound theory and probably one of the most interesting theories i found in my research so i would i will add a link to the description of that one in below wherever this is posted, because I honestly found that very intriguing idea and a new way to look at this that would explain how he got away so easily and why they never really found any evidence of him being in those woods in the first place. So there you go. That's one of my personal favorite theories that I have found so far. Now for a few other things along with that. This author also commented that the FBI and the USAF and a few others did, in fact, try a test to make sure this was the case, that he actually did jump at this point. They made a makeshift dummy, they flew the same aircraft over the Pacific Ocean, and they dropped it off the back, Um, Harold E. Anderson, who had been on the plane during the hijacking, stated that this had a similar reaction to what he felt, and the agencies considered it good and case closed on that particular section of the case. But there's a couple issues with here. A lot of specialists have looked into this and questioned the accuracy Because the weather conditions were extremely different. There was no rain. There was no unpredictable gust of wind coming from all over. They were flying over the ocean, not a mountain range, which is different. And they had conflicting reports from different analysts who were there at the time. Also, Harold E. Anderson, who was the flight engineer, was there. But they didn't have either the pilot or the co-pilot present to confirm it as well. And you do have to take into account that the FBI was putting a lot of pressure on these different investigators from the higher up to get this case done and done right. They would probably get a lot of blowback and a lot of issues If they came out and said that they had made a mistake in the initial investigation, this was a highly televised and reported on case that everybody knew about and everybody was paying attention to. And so they had to be careful in how they were showing things to the public in order to protect their reputation. But who knows? Maybe the test was accurate, maybe it was not. I think they should redo the test in more accurate conditions. But either way, that's still something that could probably be faked. There you go, my two cents. Now that the theory portion is over, I want to really quick get into the evidence that has come out. Over the last couple of years. It's a very recent development. And it came initially from studying the money that had been found by the little boy. In the nine years after Cooper's disappearance. Um, It was studied a couple of times in a couple different years. By an investigator investigatory group that was formed by FBI Special Agent Larry Carr in 2009. This group was led by Tom K, (laughs) and it was called Citizens Sleuths. I'm not making that bit up, and I do want to go talk to them and ask who came up with the name, because one, that's really cool that they're they're willing to put that name out there. That's something that's normally just found in a book. But two, I will admit it does sound a little bit cheesy. So maybe I'll reach out to them one of these days because I'm kind of questioning that. However, moving on. They studied this money and they noticed a couple of things, but their really big discoveries came out mainly in 2020. So, first, they noticed that this money was in a very compacted state, like it had been buried for a long period of time under a significant amount of pressure. More pressure than the light amount of dirt that that it was under when the boy found it. The theory behind this goes that the bills had been buried deeper in the ground, and then slowly uncovered by the water eroding the dirt away. So you have that. You have the second point that the rubber bands surrounding the bills were intact when it was uncovered. If they had been left out in the open for an extended period of time, or if they had gone tumbling down a river like most people had suspected, they thought that Cooper had dropped it when he was parachuting out into the river, then the rubber bands would have fallen apart a lot quicker and long before any, before this group found this money. But it only, they only started to fall apart after they had been uncovered and people started handling them. Then the rubber bands fell apart, but up until that point, they were in decently good condition. The third, and when I, what I think is one of the more interesting points is that they studied the diatoms on the money. I did not know what that was. I had to go look it up. It's okay if you don't know either. Diatoms, apparently, are single-celled algae found in the in surface bodies of water. And it's described as kind of being like a fingerprint for water. Certain bodies have certain types, and they're distinctive. And you can tell when they came about, and where, just by studying them. And in their research, they found two distinctive diatoms that have very scientific names that I cannot promise I am getting right. In fact, I can almost promise I'm definitely getting them wrong. You have astronolol and astronolala, whatever, and fragalara, which are very specifically spring species. They only produce and come out during the spring, while Cooper jumped in November, which means these bills had not been exposed to the water when Cooper initially jumped out of the plane. The theory goes along that the bills had could not have been exposed to diatoms from any other season. There was none other found. So they had been in a place that was away from the river for a length of time until an unspecified spring. We don't know which spring. We cannot tell when they were brought out and near the river and possibly either dropped on the riverbank where it was wet or briefly in the river itself where they were exposed to these diatoms before being buried in the sandbar their findings do suggest that a person moved them and that they buried them so i don't know it's possible either db cooper could have hid them himself and then come back and buried them somewhere else or somebody else could have found them and buried them wanting to keep them for themselves it's not clear but that does give us more of an idea of what happened to this money, which does get us closer to what actually happened to D.B. Cooper. The last thing that the Citizen Sleuths really produced that was major evidence was that they studied the J.C. Penny tie that was left behind by Cooper. What they found were bits of pure titanium and a few other scientific things I will attempt to pronounce, Strontium and brium sulfide. I got those two correctly, most likely. Um, These are substances that aren't normally found in places. These are not normal to find anywhere, especially the pure titanium. But most likely, where all three of these could have come from is being used by an engineer working for a plane company, but very specifically for Boeing or a Boeing subcontractor, which were leading studies using some of these chemicals. This led a lot of people to believe that Cooper could have worked for Boeing, which would have explained his knowledge of the plane. But... This is if the tie was originally Cooper's to begin with, if he didn't go and find it in a goodwill somewhere, or stole it from somewhere. There's a possibility it is his, there's a possibility it's not. Yet another thing in this whole case that has not been confirmed. There are many, many, many things in this case that have not been confirmed, and that leads to a lot of the questions and a lot of the mysteries surrounding D.B. Cooper. There's plenty of articles out there and plenty of books that (laughs) have the title, D.B. Cooper Case Solved, but in a lot of those cases, there are some information that's cherry-picked. Or, in other cases, these articles and these books were written before this most recent evidence was discovered. So they just don't have all the knowledge available, which makes sense. This is a case where you get to decide for yourself. Who do you think it was? There's plenty of possibilities and plenty of people willing to come forward to claim that they are DB Cooper. But until we get very solid information... This is one that goes down in the history books as a mystery, and will most likely stay as such for a long time. I did find a lot more information than I ever thought I would in this case, and honestly, it's pretty easy to find. Just make sure you double-check your sources, but I highly recommend, again, go check out. Go check it all out for yourself. Find the information. Find your favorite suspect. Let me know who you think it is, why you think it's that person. There is a, um, now an Instagram page for this podcast and a few other things that I will share in the ending of the show. But thank you so much for joining me on this very interesting case. Oh my, there was so much to look through. That was a lot of information. So... I'm glad I got to do it, honestly. It was very fun and I learned a lot. Thanks for joining me today. And go ahead, look for yourself into the D.B. Cooper mystery. Thank you again for joining me on Bizarre Archives, where we study the mysterious, the weird, and the strange events throughout history. I did mention that there is an Instagram page, so if you want to go follow that, it is either under Archives Bizarre or Bizarre Archives. Either one that you type in will pull it up. Just look for the same logo as the podcast and there you go. And if you want to send me a comment or a message through there talking about one of the different episodes so far, or about this case, who you think D.B. Cooper is, different pieces of of evidence that you've heard about, or if you even just want to send me a message about a weird event in history that you've heard about, I would definitely love different material to study. Also, Bizarre Archives is now available on a few different different broadcasting sites, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. So depending on which one you're listening through, go ahead and give a like or a comment. Or if you're listening on one that doesn't allow that, then go ahead and share it with somebody that might find it interesting. But thank you so much for your support and for listening to this episode. I will see you next time on Bizarre Archives.